Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Sure, today's episode is largely about a team. About, about a team. I want to say about a boy. But really, I think we could probably do today's show and just say something like, let me talk to you for a minute about the Indiana Pacers. It's not a, not a traditional rant episode of Fantasy NBA Today. No, that wouldn't really be fair because I have all these gripes that I want to get off of my chest as we're launching headlong into a program. No, it's not that, that quite that kind of show, but it's not far off from that kind of show. It's not far. So let me talk to you for a minute about the Indiana Pacers. First of all, our very own Rhett Bauer has the Pacers season in review article up at Sports Ethos right now. I'll throw the link in the description of today's podcast. It's also, you can be fine. It can be fine pretty easily, I believe, on the Ethos homepage. I know that we tweeted it out, so that should be pretty straightforward. Easiest place to find it is actually in Discord, believe it or not. We have a... Uh, season recap season wrap thread in discord where those are getting posted you can find them all just lined up in there but here's the thing first of all Rhett, nobody knows the pacers better than red bauer nobody and red has the same gripes i do which is the pacers for all intents and purposes were a team that was this close to having two massive, massive fantasy wins. But, once again, games played reared their ugly head. Miles Turner got to 62 games played. It's not the end of the world. But after this brilliant per-game output, getting waylaid a bit by games played was a downer because his per game was a second rounder his totals rank was fourth his ADP by the way was basically fourth round on Yahoo it was right around his ADP by totals per game he beat it so on that roto side yeah you're feeling pretty good about that you know almost three and a half blocks per game just mondo season no, two and a half blocks per game. Excuse me. Mondo, Mondo season. Big time scoring jump with no Demonis Sabonis around. Rebounding, obviously, also went up with no, no Sabonis around. Blocks came down because he was tasked with doing more on the offensive side. We shouldn't have been too surprised there. And then Tyrese Halliburton is actually kind of the same story. Per game, he beat his ADP. He was going late first round by the time most drafts happen. Your ADP numbers are going to be off by a tiny bit. He was going... Remember is the initial number was like around 20, and then it jumped to like 6 when Yahoo did their, their first readjustment? Well, Halliburton was number 28 by totals for basically the same reason as Miles Turner. He missed 26 ball games this year as the number 9 per game guy. He was brilliant. He was like Chris Paul of old. He was Chris Paul with slightly fewer steals and slightly more three-pointers. Prime era stuff. But 
He missed a bunch of time. Middle of the season, he missed a few weeks. You kind of eat those if you had to. But then the shutdown crept in. For basically everybody, all the veterans, I guess I should say, for basically all of the guys playing normal starters minutes that are like even two years into the NBA. That's not entirely true. Besides Buddy Heald, who missed two games with a really bad bug, and then they let him play like a handful of minutes down the stretch to to get a new games played streak going. Because that's one of his things. That's like a Buddy thing. Buddy actually ended up having a really nice season because he wanted to play through all of his stuff. So the Pacers were like, so they were this close in so many aspects. I would actually argue that the best draft pick on the Pacers was Buddy Heald. As much love as Tyrese Halliburton got this year, and well-deserved. Now let's also remember here that at Sports Ethos, we were on Tyrese Halliburton the previous year when his ADP was 60 and he finished as a first-round totals player. This year, there wasn't a whole lot of room. You know, you're drafting him at 10. There really was almost no room for him to go up much from there. Miles Turner, we always know there's going to be a games played thing. Luckily, it didn't completely obliterate him. So, he, you know, he touched, he basically tied his ADP. He was a draw there. But Buddy Heald was going in the, in the 70s and 80s. And his totals rank was in the 20s. That's what you get when you play in your ball games. 29, I think, on Basketball Monster. Yahoo had him in the mid to late 20s. So somewhere in the middle of all of that. So Buddy Heald, probably the best draft pick on the Pacers this year, somehow. But, as much fun as Miles Turner was for Roto Leagues, where you didn't have to worry about the 20 games missed, and as much fun as Tyrese Halliburton was for the stretch that he was upright, which, by the way, wasn't enough, but was something, and as much fun as Buddy Heald was in pretty much all respects, he was just a winner from start to finish, the downsides with Indiana were almost equally large or possibly frustrating. I don't even know how you want to classify it. And those big downside situations that I'm referring to, and you guys all know exactly where I'm going with this, is what the hell happened with Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith? We saw these guys in, you know, in somewhat limited sample size, but not like an overwhelmingly so. It was basically like post-All-Star break kind of stuff. With Indiana last year, it looked like it was time for a breakout. Isaiah Jackson, 2.2 blocks per game last month and a half last year. I know his rank was not all that impressive. But some of that was sample size stuff. Some of it was the free throws kind of weighing him down a little bit. He looked like a guy that could get 20-some-odd minutes and block two-plus shots per game. That's pretty much all you need to do in the NBA, to, in fantasy at least, to get yourself into that top 75 range. And then Jalen Smith, as you guys might recall, towards the end of last year, he went crazy for Indiana. Last two months, he was inside the top 90, and it just sort of kept getting better down the stretch last year, where he was at 14 points, 8 boards, block and a half. That was in 23 minutes a game. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. 
It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. So when we heard that Jalen Smith was the starting power forward, at least with Isaiah Jackson, we knew he was a backup to Miles Turner. He was always the, okay, well, Miles is going to go down at some point. So let's have Isaiah at the ready or Miles is going to get traded. Let's have Isaiah at the ready. With Jalen Smith, it was his job to start the year and he boned it. He had like two good games right at the very beginning of the season. It looked like everything was coming up Jalen and then just a fart after that. This, again, was a guy who in 22, 23 minutes per game was sitting just outside the top 100. He was scoring. He was rebounding. He was blocking shots. His field goal percent was above 50. And then this year came along, and it was just an unmitigated disaster right from day one. He shot 47.5% for the year, averaged under 10 points per game, six rebounds, wasn't particularly impressive. Free throw stroke actually got a little bit better. But the real thing there for Jalen, 19 minutes a game this year. His minutes got yanked around from day one to day whatever the hell the season was. And so I do have a a bone to pick with Rick Carlisle on all of this stuff. And I know that Pacers fans can look at me and say, well, okay, Dan, what do you want Rick to do? He had a good season. Did he have a good season? Because this was not a championship-run Pacers team. Tyrese Halliburton's a lot of fun. Miles Turner's pretty solid at that center spot. Buddy Heald is fine. Then you got a bunch of young guys you're trying to develop. That's not a team that's going to win a title. Pacers went 35-47. and 47. And because of that, I mean, you had four teams. Well, Wizards had the same record as the Pacers. But you also had three teams in the other conference. So the Indiana, on a season where, frankly, they should have been going for another draft pick, they ended up with whatever it is, eighth, ninth worst record in the NBA. If this was a tank year, they blew it. If this was a make-a-run year, they blew it. They ended up right in that god-awful midpoint where no one really wants to be. And you could say, oh, Dan, well, you know, franchise, sometimes a franchise just needs to get some wins to feel better about itself. I don't think the Pacers are at that juncture right now because, like, you know, the Nate McMillan years weren't that long ago. They were pretty competitive then, and they haven't really been tanking at all. They haven't been good, mind you. You know, Pacers were 25 and 57 last year, but they were 34 and 38 the year before that. That was the first year post-COVID. 
Year before that, the Pacers were 45 and 28. The COVID year, the Pacers were good. This is not a team that's been in tank rebuild mode at all yet. Because remember, they had Sabonis until the end of last season. They just weren't very good. I don't get it, guys. If the fastest way to rebuild a basketball team is to get a high draft pick. Now, the Pacers did well to get Tyrese Halliburton, somebody that they can build their team around, who was a relatively high draft pick. But this was an opportunity. This year was an opportunity to take some L's, play some young guys. And instead, they had this mildly successful year where they looked good for stretches and then Halliburton got hurt and then they started resting him and then they were like, you know what, at the end of the year, we're going to go ahead and we're going to take some losses because we want to try to get, like, you know, the eighth pick in the draft instead of the 11th or something like that and fine that, you know, you move up the board. But if they had even considered taking a little bit of a tank breather in there, a breather from trying to tank instead, they could have had, like, the fifth or sixth worst record in the NBA. You're starting to talk about some pretty damn good players at that juncture. Perhaps they trust that they can get a player that they want at the eighth or whatever. I've, I've lost track of the reverse order of stuff here. And maybe they do jump up in the draft and everything, you know, works out in the end for Indiana. But I am irritated. I am irritated because you guys all remember, we just talked about it on the old man squad. I thought Jalen Smith was going to have a pretty darn good year and he was just a mess. He had his job for a couple of weeks, and it went completely up in flames, and then Rick Carlisle rotated through Aaron Neesmith and whoever else would play in that power forward spot, and sometimes Jalen Smith got the backup center minutes, and Isaiah Jackson didn't even get to play, and vice versa. Is that really... I Okay, I get it. Like, you got to hold your guys accountable, but not playing a dude for stretches at all is not holding them account- accountable. That's just not seeing what you have. Are the Pacers trying to develop those guys? Are they going to try to move them? Either way, you have to showcase them somehow. More than one way to skin a cat, I suppose. But my irritation with the Pacers is quite large this year because other than Buddy Heald, you really didn't get the best of any of the worlds. If they had competed all season long, then at least you could have happily hopped on the Miles Turner thing from day one to the end of the season or the Tyrese Halliburton thing, and you could have been happy with it. Or if they had gone into the tank, then we would have gotten something out of our old, uh, the, the younger guys backing up the older dudes. But instead, we got this weird in-between where Buddy Heald was basically the only dude on the whole damn ball club that beat his totals ADP. I think TJ McConnell might have as well because he got some bonus playing time down the stretch and rocketed up the board. But that doesn't even really count because McConnell, you were that was a spot play. You know, Neesmith was a spot play. These guys that were all spot plays, you can't even really count them as beating their ADP because their ADP probably didn't exist. Buddy Heald is the only legitimate players or the legitimate Pacer draft pick that beat his ADP on a totals basis pretty much no matter where you looked. Miles Turner, I think, uh, I don't know. E- forget ESPN's numbers. Their numbers are stupid. Miles um, was basically a dead heat for his ADP on Yahoo. Halliburton was behind it because of all the missed games down the stretch. 
And then Isaiah Jackson, Jalen Smith didn't even really get close. So Buddy Heald being like the true winner on that team, to me, is just yelling Rick Carlisle, have a plan, dude, have a plan. And then what to do with someone like a Benedict Matherin, whose fantasy stat set is incredibly limited. He scored 17 points a game and four rebounds, but he pretty much did nothing else this season. That's not going to get it done on a nine-cat basis. Uh, you know, we, we see players like this. Their games don't typically change all that much. You know, maybe the scoring continues to increase. Maybe there ends up being enough just in the scoring threes and free throw department to counterweight the lack of steals, blocks, assists, or rebounds, and, and poor field goal percent. It's just not typical on the fantasy side. He did shoot almost six free throws per game. So if you're looking for, okay, how does Matherin get over the hump? Because he was number 193 per game in 8-cat and worse in 9-cat. Like, he's just not even remotely close. The percentages need to go up, both of them, substantially. Certainly field goal percent needs to go up substantially. Free throw needs to increase a little bit to turn that that volume into a big-time productivity number. He's probably got to start hitting over two three-pointers per game. And all of that means that the scoring is going to have to get into the 20s. The rebounds is probably going to have to get up and over five. You're probably going to need to get more steals or blocks, which is not going to happen. And the turnovers, honestly, probably need to be lower if he's not passing at all. Since the turnover ratio under one, eh, not great. If you're a wing, you're not a big man here. Looking towards next year, Halliburton's probably going to go in the first round if folks expect the Pacers to compete all season long. Miles Turner probably goes in the fourth again, and maybe he ends up as kind of like a Kristaps Porzingis-style dude where you hope for 65 ball games, but you prepare yourself for 58. Buddy Heald, if he's still happily in Indiana, there's sort of no reason why he'll just sort of lose his job. They played him off the bench down the stretch to get a look at the younger guys, but that was not a long-term thing. And then... In terms of Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith, I don't know how you put your trust back in them until something opens up in the front court, which it doesn't look like it's going to be. It's weird that I have to say Buddy Heald is the biggest win on this team, but he really is. Blasted his ADP in pretty much every respect. Guess we'll see what they do during free agency in the offseason if anybody gets shifted around on that club, but that's your Indiana Pacers right now. Folks, a mid-show reminder to please check out the Wager Pass over at SportsEthos.com. Use coupon code ABSURD, A-B-S-U-R-D, to get 75% off the first month of the Wager Pass. That's crazy. It's $14.99 typically. That's $15 a month subscription plan, and you can knock 75% off of that stuff. Woo! We're so confident that you're going to get in there and Mike Fiddle's just going to win you a crap ton of money. And let's see, who's doing tennis right now? You know what? Let me pull up the wager pass while we're talking so I can actually get the proper handicappers right with what they've thrown into the mix. What do we got going on today at the time of recording this podcast? Hold on, everybody. I'm going to, I'm going to find this out. I'm going to do it without even, without even turning the recording off. We're doing it live. All right, so Blake's got two baseball plays in. Keith Cork, the the main man, Keith Cork, 
has five baseball plays, four NBA props. Uh, Fishy, the man they call Fisher. What the hell is that? Tennis? I think that's tennis. I don't know tennis, but I do know that dude wins at tennis. That's in there right now. So today, you got 1, 2, 7, 11, 12 bets in the wager pass and counting. Plus, you got Aaron Brewski's live playoff betting journal, which is a different page you can only access with the wager pass. You also have access to all of these guys via the site Premium Discord. That's at sportsethos.com. Click on the Premium tab. Choose Get Premium. Sign up for the wager pass with promo code ABSURD. A-B-S-U-R-D, get 75% off that first month. And then after that, after you win a bunch of money, just let it ride. Let's talk playoffs. We got games and we got series we got to go over here on this Friday afternoon. Lakers, four and a half point home favorites over the Grizzlies. This one's just been flip-flopping back and forth by basically the home court. Each team roughly about a four-point favorite on their own site. Total 220 and a half. And the Lakers, there's just no way that they play at the speed they played at in the last ball game. They let Memphis get out and run, and it burned them. Memphis turned that damn game into a track meet. Grizzlies had 118 possessions. Lakers had 115 possessions, dramatically underachieved their expected number because they just missed, like, every three-pointer on earth. But that's too fast. That's too fast for the older team here. And it plays into the hands of John Morant, in particular, who was fantastic in Game 5 because the Grizzlies got him out in the open court. And Desmond Bain got hot early. And he was good in the open court. And then he was also good at hitting three-pointers. And that's what the Grizzlies need. They need their guards to be monsters because the Lakers can generally deal with the other dudes out there. You know, Anthony Davis can slow down Jaron Jackson Jr. when he's guarding him. LeBron's done a perfectly reasonable job one-on-one, but that matchup's been awful when the Grizzlies been have spread things out and try to leave the Lakers with no rim protection. Lakers tried a couple minutes of Wenyan Gabriel in Game 5. It didn't work out all that great. You might see a more traditional big man during the, uh, the minutes at the start of the second quarter, end of the first, beginning of the second. Basically, the second Anthony Davis went out of that ball game, the whole thing went up in flames. AD and Austin Reeves were a plus 6 and a plus 5 respectively, and then everybody else was pretty much getting there. You know what's handed to them. Also, LeBron was terrible in Game 5. AD was the only Laker who had a good ball game. I feel pretty comfortable saying that. Now, Davis does a bit better in the open court because there's less him just getting mauled by three people at the same time at the rim, and and people always want to talk about, like, Lakers getting all the calls, and they got a lot of them in the regular season, um, Lakers are not, it's not been like a big free throw discrepancy in this thing. AD only shot three free throws in this game. JJJ shot six. See this on Twitter all the time where it's like, oh, Lakers will just get free throws. Eh, not necessarily. Austin Reeves is the best on the team at getting calls right now. Uh, but just looking at the way this game situated, you know, considering how fast the last one went, the, the fact that it only got 215 points, really, to me, points to a series that's just going to keep going slower and slower, and people haven't completely caught up with it yet. I think the side is pretty accurate. Lakers are probably going to be, like, just barely in front in crunch time, and we'll see which way it pivots at the end. Um, But the total, I would look at the under before I look at the over in this one. And then the Kings and the Warriors, dub, 7.5-point home favorites. Kings, 
Uh, total of 236. I like Sacramento to keep this one tight. I know in the last one I said I like the Warriors, but that was basically a pick em in a game where the Kings were dealing with, and it's still De'Aaron Fox's beat up right now, which sucks. And, and unfortunately, that's why when we got that injury report, I kind of had to abandon ship on my Kings are going to win this series prediction because that... I know Fox was good in their last ball game, and you know that's all, that's lovely, um, but they need him at full strength. There cannot be any kind of ding on him. He shot thirty six percent in their last ball game. Darren Fox took plenty of shots, twenty four points on twenty five shots. Though is just not going to get it done. And you can try to tell me that his finger isn't bothering him, but that low field goal percent and six turnovers, that finger is bothering him. If Fox is at full strength, Kings probably win that ball game, but he's not. And that's what the playoffs are about. Who can stay healthy throughout and maximize who they've got on the court? And for the Kings, without Fox, they're, they're just only okay. He's been the guy that wins all the close games for them. If they can't count on him to hit every shot in the fourth quarter. But I do think that they're going to fight their butts off, though. The Kings are not going down without a couple of big haymakers. So I think I would probably take seven and a half points before I do anything with the total. Um... Kings are probably going to try to play even faster. Knowing that they can't count on De'Aaron Fox to bail them out in the half court late with because of that finger. So uh, I don't want anything to do with the total on that ball game. I would look at the Kings on the side. Tomorrow, over the weekend, Suns and Nuggets uh, fire things up with the only game on Saturday. Nuggets are a three-point home favorite. Odds makers think the Suns are ever so slightly out in front in this series um, they are a minus 130 series price favorite, Nuggets plus 110. This is intriguing because you can actually set up a series game arbitrage situation. And you're like, Dan, what on earth? We're like getting into the weeds here for probably a profit of like $8 or something to that effect. But if you think... The Suns, uh, let's look at it the other way. If you think the Nuggets are going to win the series, you can get Denver at plus money at most public betting sites, like in Bovada and whatever other very public sites, FanDuel, etc. They're like a plus 110, plus 115. It's not all that large, but you got underdog odds on game one. And the Suns are plus 125 on the money line in game one. Now, the way that this one could go sideways on you is if you took that bet... The Nuggets win game one, and you've got a Nuggets bet. But here's the beauty part of that. If the Nuggets win game one, the series price probably shifts ever so slightly to where you could, if you wanted to, end up with Phoenix at basically a pick em. And you kind of buy off your original bet. But if there's any gap between the Nuggets at plus 110 and whatever you get Phoenix on for the next one, then that's your little, like tiny chunk of profit or split it up somehow now if the nuggets win game one uh well you're stuck with it or now if the suns win game one you're stuck with a, a nuggets series ticket that maybe you don't like all that much and perhaps you could have gotten at a slightly better price but like if you're looking to try to make about eight dollars <laughs> that's one way to do it uh, it's a lot of work for very little. Um, as far as the actual series goes, if you want to, don't want to get too deep into this silly math of this whole thing, um, Phoenix is the favorite for the series. I'm 
not convinced that they have the chemistry yet. They struggled with a Clippers team missing Paul George. They lost to that team. And then, like, I don't know that the Clippers might not have won that series if Kawhi Leonard stays upright instead of tearing a meniscus. Kawhi goes down again. Nuggets are better than the Clippers with only Kawhi. The Nuggets are better than I think most people realize. That's the funny part of all of this. I don't know what's going to happen in Game 1 in this series, but I think the Nuggets are uh, at a pretty good price for the series at plus 110. The Heat and the Knicks are another one that's getting fired up. That's on Sunday. Uh, let me. I'm still looking at money lines here. Let's make sure we go back to our sides and totals. Knicks 4.5 point home favorite. That's Vegas telling us they feel like these teams are pretty much a dead heat. Uh, total is 208. They know the Knicks want to play a super close uh, and slow ball game. This one's actually even more interesting because now we're talking about a series where uh, for the game, odds makers feel like the teams are basically an even match. By, by giving the Knicks a four and a half point spread at home, that's saying these two teams are the same on a neutral site. At least the other one kind of matches the series price. With the Nuggets a three-point home favorite, that's basically like oddsmakers saying, oh, the Suns are about a one to one-and-a-half-point neutral site favorite. Whereas Heat and Knicks, they're, right now they're telling us we believe these two teams are a neutral site dead heat. And so the Knicks at minus 160 on the series price is really basically just saying, we, if we think this game goes to a seventh ball game, that minus 160, that's going to be the price of the seventh game. So you could, once again, try to muck around with this stuff. Um, I, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how you don't... how you bet against playoff Jimmy Butler right now, but the Knicks did look pretty good in Series 1. Uh, I don't think I'm doing anything with the opening game of this set. I wouldn't be blown away if the Heat won again. You just... I mean, the question is whether or not the Knicks shoot themselves in the foot. We do not have a series price in a lot of places on Celtics 76ers because we don't know if Joel Embiid is playing. We do have a game price, and right now that's Celtics by 7 with a total of 214.5. Don't touch that one until you know what's going on with Joel Embiid. These games are way too important to try to guess at what the hell you think is going to go down. Way too important. I know there's a certain joy in trying to get out in front of a line jump, but you could really blast yourself right in the toe if you end up on a side that you don't like. Leave it alone. Very excited about tonight. Come on, Kings. Get it to seven. I don't think that they will. I feel so bad about this De'Aaron Fox thing, man. That sucks. That really sucks. Could they have won their last one if he was fully healthy? Absolutely. Everybody's like, oh, the Warriors are back now. And we're doing the same shtick again. Warriors did play better in that last game. I give them some credit, certainly, but De'Aaron Fox's finger. That's that's the damn story right now in that series. Let's all enjoy some basketball, everybody. Um, and we'll hope that Rick Carlisle actually plays a young guy next year, but we, I think we all know he probably won't. I'm Dan Vespers for Fantasy NBA Today, a sports ethos presentation. Have a wonderful Friday and a wonderful weekend. We are three full weeks of episodes into the fantasy offseason now. You can cross another one off the board. Our little, you know, prison wall of chalk slashes of how many offseason shows we've done. That's 15. Bingo, bango. On to the next one. <laughs>